From a studio high above the clouds of the Okanagan Valley, this is the Cannabis Podcast. Exploring the world of Canadian cannabis culture, one toke at a time. Now, here's your host and bud tender, Gary Johnston. Here he is, and here are you. Welcome back. Welcome back to episode number nine. Number nine, number nine, number nine. Okay, I probably just dated myself there. <laughs> if you want to get that obscure reference, just look up the Beatles' White Album, then it'll all make sense to you. Welcome back. I'm glad you're here. Episode nine, we've got a lot of stuff packed into this little episode. In fact, in this episode, we prove that keeping on task can bring rewards. You may remember early on when we started the podcast, I'm used about certain people I'd like to talk to. And one of the names that kept coming up was Dana Larson. But I think at the end of last episode, I might have mused that I was giving up on that idea. Because even though he and I had connected, it was difficult getting that final connection where I could actually talk to him. So I had kind of given up. But I love the way the universe works. Because somehow or other, the universe put everything together. And this episode features an extended interview with the one and only Dana Larson. Now, before we touch on that, we're going to touch on retail, see what's happening here in the Okanagan and in other parts of the country. And we're also going to go back to hellomd.com, that great site we found for information on terpenes, and another article they have come together with on terpenes. This time, though, we're going to calm things down a bit with linalool. And we're going to finish things today with a plea to drop marijuana from your vocabulary. Stick around for that. That is what we have lined up for you today on Episode 9 of the Cannabis Podcast. How about we take a look at what's happening in the retail market? Interesting, of course, what's happening in Ontario with their lottery and the 25 initial stores that are going to open up and the municipalities in Ontario deciding whether or not they're going to allow those stores. Looks like over 200 Ontario municipalities have said yes and about 60 or so have said no so far to cannabis retail. In BC here, we are exploding with retail outlets. Could you hear the sarcasm there? <laughs> One more. One more retail store has been added in the last couple of weeks, just the other day. We are sure taking care of people up north. And that's good. I am really happy for everybody up in the northeast part of our province. Because after Pousse Coupe got their early license, I think they were third in the province, the latest to get a government license for cannabis sales is up in that same area, Tumblr Ridge. The dinosaur capital of B.C. now has a license for a retail cannabis store. There is still no idea when we are going to see one here in the Okanagan. Now, let me clarify that. We already have an indigenous bloom store. What I really should say is I have no idea when we are going to see our first provincially licensed cannabis store. Apparently, they tell me it is still a race between Summerland and Lake Country. I guess if it is a race, I think what they're doing is recreating the tortoise and the hare race. Because <laughs> things are still moving <sighs> glacially slow in the retail area of cannabis. Surely, things have got to get better soon. Let's put retail aside and turn our attention to something we've been talking about a lot over the last few episodes, and that is terpenes. Just to recap for somebody who might be joining us and not heard about terpenes so far, terpenes are fragrant oils produced by the resin glands of many plants, and in fact they're responsible for the distinctive taste and pleasant scents of fruits, 
several flowers and other products. But science also shows us that terpenes contain compounds that can affect many systems in the body to boost immunity, relieve pain, as well as produce a long list of other positive health effects. The cannabis plant is estimated to have more than 200 different terpenes. We've talked about that before. And since research on marijuana terpenes is relatively new, more may soon be discovered. Terpenes and cannabinoids interact in a variety of complex ways. That helps explain why different cannabis strains can have different effects, even though they might contain fairly equivalent amounts of dominant cannabinoids like CBD or THC. And our focus terpene of the day is linalool. The flowery, spicy scent of linalool infuses shampoos, soaps, and candles, and gives lavender oil its soothing, calming effects. Linalool is a terpene produced by over 200 species of plants around the world, including cannabis. And now... Research reveals that its potent healing properties can enhance the therapeutic effects of cannabidiol, CBD, tetrahydrocannabinol, THC, and other cannabis compounds. Little Lul, it seems, is a healing cannabis terpene. Along with limonene and myrcene, linalool is fairly well-studied cannabis terpene, even though a few strains, mainly indicas, contain it in very high amounts. Linalool adds a light floral scent and spicy taste to cannabis when smoked or added to edibles, but its healing effects are far more significant, both in their own and in combination with other compounds. The human body contains many receptor systems which respond to chemicals produced within the body and similar ones from other sources. Now, a few of those are the endocannabinoid system, ECS, which is responsible for the body's responses to cannabis, the opioidergic system, which responds to natural opioids like endorphins, as well as opioid medications like OxyContin, the dopaminergic system, which is triggered by dopamine, the feel-good chemical associated with pleasure and reward. It seems linalool affects receptors in all of these systems, as well as others related to immune responses and pain. Linalool has been shown in some folks to reduce anxiety, relieve depression and pain, support the immune system, and prevent seizures. And if you want to dive into all of the details, then I suggest you click the link for the Hello MD article on linalool and find out all about it for yourself and maybe look for some linalool in your next cannabis strain. From the cannabis-infused studio in the clouds, this is the Cannabis Podcast. And my guest today is well known to anyone involved in the Canadian cannabis scene for the last couple of decades. He was a founder or co-founder of many institutions we know, the Vancouver Seed Bank, the Vancouver Dispensary Society, Sensible BC, plus, of course, the British Columbia Marijuana Party. For decades, he's been a prominent cannabis activist, and yet he even found time to author parody books like Green Buds and Hash or Harry Pothead and the Marijuana Stone. Dana Larson is here this week, and I began our conversation asking how he keeps himself motivated. How do you keep yourself inspired to keep doing the activism after so many years you've been doing it? Well, you know, it's not an easy lifestyle being uh, an activist like this or for other causes as well. And I've seen a lot of people come and go over the years. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I believe in what we're doing. And, and for me, it's more than just cannabis. It's really about the whole war on drugs. And I don't know, I guess I remind myself that we're making progress and things take a little bit of uh, change at a time to make big changes happen. And um it's just the way it is. I, I think we've made a lot of progress, and I'm looking forward to, to making more. I just try to keep my spirits up and one step at a time. Well, well, you obviously do a good job of that because you are keeping your spirits up and you are 
continuing your activism role. I've been amazed uh, doing some research, obviously, before this discussion, seeing how many things you have done. It tires me just to watch the list of the things you've accomplished with all of your activism roles, all your author roles, some of the books you've written. Pretty cool, Dan, that you're keeping it up. So now I guess I understand it's just keeping that spirit up and keeping positive about it. Well, thanks for that. I feel lazy sometimes, so it's nice seeing that uh, maybe others don't see it the same way. But uh, but yeah, I've really enjoyed my career as an activist. For me, it's been fun because I've been able to do a whole lot of different things all sort of circling around this one topic. So I've been able to uh, start businesses, to do political work and run for office, to write books, uh, and a lot of other sort of uh, different things. I'm not the kind of guy who likes getting up and going to the same job every day, so I've really enjoyed uh, the variety and the many different uh, programs and activities and, and challenges that this whole uh, lifelong crusade has brought to me. So what would you say has been your biggest satisfaction that you've achieved to date? Is, is there one particular thing that it comes down to, or is it a bunch of things? My biggest satisfaction? I mean, I look back on my career and some of the stuff that I've done, I think, well, that was a lot of work, but didn't really accomplish much. And other stuff, I think, oh, that really helped a lot. I think that you know, in terms of bringing the country to legalization, I think that two of the, the campaigns that I did were, were very influential. The one was the Sensible BC campaign in 2012 and 2013, where we uh, collected signatures and tried to get a referendum or a, a ballot vote in British Columbia to decriminalize cannabis at the provincial level. And even though we didn't get the number of signatures that we needed to get on the ballot, uh, that campaign, I think, was very influential, and it was during our Sensible BC campaign that Trudeau came out uh, first for the first time in support of full legalization, uh, something he did in response to one of our canvassers. And I really think that campaign, even though the campaign itself uh, was a failure in terms of getting on the ballot, I really think that was very influential in terms of getting us uh, to the legalization that we're at now. And I guess the other thing that I think was also important that I was able to do was to really push forward the dispensary movement. You know, I wasn't the first guy to open a dispensary in Canada by any means. We were the third one to open in Vancouver. But I spent a lot of time, me and my manager at our dispensary, spent many, many hours teaching other people how to open their own dispensaries. We had dozens of people come through our location. We would show them every single thing we did and break it all down. We put on seminars for people to learn in a group setting how to run their own dispensaries. And I'm, I know that I helped you know, dozens of places get open across the country. And I think this mass civil disobedience campaign that really started in bongs and pipes in the 90s and then seed banks and, uh, and cannabis rallies and that and the, uh, blossoming into dispensaries and this open civil disobedience, I think that was also very influential in making it impossible for them to enforce the cannabis laws, providing access to cannabis to literally millions of Canadians. And ultimately, I think that also was a big part of why the laws changed and why we're at legalization today. So, I mean, I've run a lot of campaigns. Some have been more effective than others, but I think those two campaigns specifically uh, were important and probably helped to bring us into legalization. I would agree. And I'm pretty sure I was one of the ones who was on the added my signature to your sensible BC when you did that. I thought that was a great campaign that you did. It was a real long shot, you know, but, uh, but it was very successful in terms of we were the, we got the second most signatures of any uh, campaign like that ever in BC. 
It would have been great to get on the ballot, but it's really designed to fail and be very difficult, which is shown by the fact that only one group has ever had a vote on anything in, in the many uh, years since that was created as an option. But, uh, but yeah, those campaigns. I mean, I've given away lots of cannabis seeds and done other campaigns that I think are important, but in terms of a direct connection between the campaign and the law changing, I think those, those two campaigns were ones that really had a big impact. Which has to give you a certain amount of satisfaction. So you raised legalization. We achieved it on October 17th. What's your initial reaction to how it's gone? Well, I think a lot of us in the activist community have mixed feelings. You know, you want there to be some big day where the government says we were wrong and you were right and we're sorry that we ever put these laws in the first place and we're going to liberate everything and open it all up. And, of course, you don't get it like that. You get sort of, uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of positive things about legalization. I'm very happy the law has changed, but it's by no means the end of our efforts or really what we're actually looking for. You know, it's, it's the beginning of a longer process. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy, probably happier than some others in the cannabis community, but I also recognize this is going to be a multi-year process. And we're really just at the beginning of something that is going to take quite a while, uh, many years, if not decades until the stigma around cannabis use is really eliminated and cannabis is normalized and reintegrated into our society. And that's partly about the federal law, but it's also about people's attitudes and municipalities and cities and provinces and this will take a long time. And so I don't think even for cannabis activism that our work is done by any means. I believe we still have, you know, many years ahead. But that being said, I think things are only going to get better in Canada over the coming years. I don't think that the cannabis laws, like I think right now, today, is as bad as they're going to get. And they're only going to improve uh, every day after this. So I feel I feel a lot of our effort is sort of downhill from here. Uh, but there's certainly still years of work ahead. And I think that's a good approach to it. I feel much the same way. We at least achieved legalization. We got that part. Yes, there's some tweaking we need to do. But as you say, we've got a few years to do that. How do you respond, Dana, to those in the movement who are saying that they wish legalization had never happened at this point, that that they think it's so bad that they wish it had never happened? What's your response to that? I think that's a kind of a dangerous opinion, really, because uh, that could lead to things getting a lot worse for us if, if we sort of look at it that way. You know, I, I, I can understand people in some way saying, oh, it was better under Harper. Maybe for certain individuals or certain situations, it was better under the old government. But but for, for the, the mass of Canadians and for the cause of legalization and really changing these laws, uh, it, it, it's only been positive, I think, under, under Trudeau and under the, the changes they brought in. Um, I feel like, like uh, you know, prohibition itself is good for a lot of people, too. I mean, if you grow cannabis and you don't get arrested, well, prohibition keeps your profits high, uh, makes it very lucrative, and a lot of people uh, have jobs that were created because of prohibition, growing cannabis or selling cannabis or even dispensaries and things like that. They're all sort of artifacts and of, of the prohibition. And so when prohibition ends, that could be bad for a lot of people whose business relies on being able to grow cannabis, bomb and pop, Farmers, small-scale dealers, all these people in some ways can be harmed by prohibition in terms of their business. But we have to remember that for every dollar of profit, everybody able to sell cannabis at a high rate during prohibition and, and, and make a good living at it, that comes at the expense first of others who are so lucky who get caught and are penalized and have their lives very negatively impacted by this. And also it comes at the cost of the users and the consumers, especially medical users who are forced to pay these very high 
prohibitionist prices. I want to see a legalization that actually uh, sees cannabis prices crash in the long run, which won't necessarily be good for people who make a living growing cannabis, but will be good for, for regular Canadians and for those that need cannabis for medicinal or other uses. So there's always two sides to this. And these kind of changes, you know, some people are, are, are hurt by it in some ways because they've gotten used to things being the way they are. But in the long run, all these changes are very necessary and will produce a lot of positive benefits. I would agree wholeheartedly. So as you look at that, Dana, what do you see is the biggest challenge going forward? What do you think is the, the one key thing that needs to be addressed to improve the way the laws are now? Well, I mean, I think one big issue is who's growing cannabis and how it's being grown and, and who's going to be doing that. And, and we've seen a very restrictive system at least it certainly began as a very restrictive system where it seemed like the only ones getting permits were people with insider connections with the Liberal Party. Uh, we certainly saw see a lot of these licensed producers who have uh, prominent politicians and former police chiefs on their boards, people who don't really know anything about cannabis, but might have the political connections uh, to help get these permits, to get people through the process. And and I think that's a big problem. There needs to be a lot more growers. The growing system needs to be a lot more open and accessible. You know, I'm not against the theory that someone should require a permit to grow cannabis, but in practical terms, it, it's just limited the supply of cannabis so much that we've now bizarrely got this shortage of legal cannabis in Canada. Uh, and of course, there's no shortage of cannabis. There's plenty of it out there, but the legally regulated stuff, is, is, it seems like it's going to be years before they have enough. And that, that is part of the big problem. I mean, the other aspect, of course, is who's selling it and how it's being distributed. Uh, that, I think, is going to sort of work itself out once there's a better supply. But we, I think the other problem, aside from the federal government being too slow and limited on who can grow cannabis, is that provinces are really, like, they're not embracing cannabis legalization. You know, it's telling that not one politician has come out after October 17th saying, hey, I use cannabis and I enjoy it. And I, I think it's good. It's a good thing. Like they'll all pose with bottles of wine or bottles of beer. You know, Trudeau will smash open the keg at the Oktoberfest and hold up a huge stein of beer to a screaming crowd, but not one politician. And I know many politicians who use cannabis, who used it before legalization, who use it afterwards, but the stigma is still so strong that they won't come out and talk about it or admit it. And so that leads to provinces creating these really strict laws that are also a big problem and will take years to resolve. Here in British Columbia, you can grow your four cannabis plants, but no one's allowed to see them. And if somebody can see one of your legal plants from the street, you can go to jail for three months and get a huge fine. And other provinces like Quebec and Manitoba have gone further and tried to ban home cannabis cultivation altogether. So I think that that's also an issue is that while the federal government has legalized many provinces and at the other level, many municipalities are opting out uh, of legalization. And, you know, to me, when you see this as a human rights and a civil rights issue, like we didn't allow cities to opt out of gay marriage. We don't allow cities and provinces to opt out of women's rights or voting rights or other issues of social equality, but we're allowing them to opt out of cannabis you know, I think that that's kind of ridiculous. It shouldn't really be allowed to be opting out of this kind of stuff. Uh, it should be part of the, the system. So I think we have to work to do federally, provincially, and municipally to really get a, a fair system of cannabis in place. 
I couldn't have expressed that any better. I mean, I'm looking now at the list of private stores in BC, and here we are still at, what, seven or eight after, what, three months? <laughs> it's insane what's happening yeah. with, with retail. Well, it is a problem. And as a dispensary operator, uh, it kind of puts us in a bind because on the one hand, of course, I'd rather have a permit and work within the legal system, all things being equal. But on the other hand, uh, even if this, even if the city and the province came to me tomorrow and said, okay, you can have a permit for a legal cannabis shop. You've got to shut down your dispensary and reopen as, as a legal shop and you can sell our legal products. I don't really want to do that simply because It'll, it'll mean a cannabis shortage. I won't have enough products in my shop because there isn't any. And it also means I have to turn away literally thousands of members who rely on us for medical cannabis products, extracts, uh, suppositories, edibles, capsules, creams, things that aren't available through the legal system. And so uh, I really I think one of the bigger concerns is that medical access has kind of been forgotten uh, with this recreational legalization model. And the way they're defining, you know, recreational cannabis is a bit weird. Like these legal shops, they sell only recreational products, no medicinal products. They've made that very clear, but they sell CBD. So they're only selling recreational CBD, which isn't even a thing. So there's a lot of sort of hypocrisy and nonsense in how this has come forward. And I, I think that uh, this transition period, you know, I understand there's going to be a need for a transition, but I hope that they will lay off the raids and the police action and the threats until they get their system uh, more in place uh, and make sure that patients have a continuity of care. Because right now, that's just not happening. And in fact, for many patients, it's harder to get cannabis now, uh, medical cannabis now, than it was uh, before the law changed. We're hearing lots of stories about that, and, and that's just not right. I wholeheartedly agree. So you are expanding your vision now, I see, Dana. You're, you're looking at other areas, not just cannabis. So tell me a little bit about Overgrow Canada 2019. What's that all about? Well, I started Overgrow Canada in 2016 with the idea of giving away cannabis seeds so that people could plant them in public places and normalize cannabis growing openly and freely uh, across the country like any other plant. And I've done that for three years. And this year, I'm still giving away, hopefully, millions of cannabis seeds. And you can sign up at overgrowcanada.com. But I've also decided to uh, promote the cultivation of opium poppies. Now, it's a bit different, this focus on opium poppies. I don't want people growing them in public places to normalize it. Because, in fact, growing opium poppies is very open in Canada. And, and it's, uh, it's sort of legal, or at least in a gray area, and happens all the time. Uh, but what I want to do is help create a safe drug supply. And this is something that, that has been talked about in Vancouver and provincially and federally, that people are dying from opiate overdoses because there is no safe opiate supply. And I definitely agree that cannabis can be a substitute for a lot of people. And we provide free and discount cannabis to the opioid community in Vancouver as much as we can. But for a lot of people, they don't need cannabis. They need safe opioid doses. And the provincial government has been talking about offering Suboxone and other types of heroin products to users, which I think is great. But the problem is, why are they starting off offering really strong heroin? If someone has issues, they should be saying, hey, first, have you tried cannabis? Okay, that didn't work for you. Okay, how about some opium tea? How about lower dosages of opiates that can be very beneficial for pain relief, but have way less of a risk of overdose and lower health concerns and all that? So... And in fact, there's studies showing not only in Canada, but in Southeast Asia, that when opium tea was banned, 
heroin use skyrocketed. People will switch from opium tea to heroin if those are the only choices. And whatever you think about drinking opium tea, it is way, way safer and better for you and for the community than injecting heroin. And so by asking people to grow these opium poppies, the idea is that they grow them, they get them to maturity, and then they send me the heads of the flowers with the opium latex in them. And if I can get enough, I can extract that on my end and make opium tea and then provide that to people in this community, depending how much I have. Maybe I can only help a couple of people. Maybe I can help a lot of people. But I want to make opium tea available to opiate users and kind of do an experiment and see, does this help them reduce or eliminate their use of injectable heroin and the fentanyl in that? Does it reduce uh, the risk of overdose and death? Does it increase public health? I'm pretty confident the answers to all those questions is going to be a resounding yes. But I think we've got to do some research in that and find out. But that's what this campaign is about. Uh, and I've actually surprisingly had a number of people already contacting me enthusiastically offering to, um, to grow poppies, which was kind of surprising. But I, I think this could actually work out really well. And, you know, I'm not encouraging anybody who hasn't done opium to start doing it or anything like that. But if you're already injecting opiates and you switch to opium tea, that is incredibly beneficial and positive. It should be encouraged. And so that's what I'm focusing over on this year. Uh, cannabis, but also the poppies as well. Oh, very cool. And so if you want more information, you go to overgrowcanada.com. That's where you, all the details That's are. right. I'm not, I'm, not actually, I'm not actually giving away opium poppy seeds, but you can buy, which is odd because opium poppy seeds are legal and you can actually buy them quite easily. And I've got a bunch of links on the website. You can buy thousands of opium poppy seeds for $5 or less. Uh, and so the idea is people will do this, help create a legal supply, hopefully uh, save some lives. And really... You know, I would love to see the legalization of opium in its raw form again. Uh, in, in, in Canada, there was kind of a big crackdown on opium poppy farmers uh, during the early 2000s. Uh, it was popular among the Southeast Asian community uh, to grow opium poppies, and there was actually a big opium poppy farm in Delta. And if you follow the newspapers, when they raided that farm and shut it down, if you look ahead about five years in the news, you get all these stories from the Southeast Asian community saying people are hooked on heroin. And I read one story where they talked to the family and it's the guys like I used to drink Dota tea, they call it. It's made from dried opium poppies. He used to drink Dota tea. Things were fine. The opium poppies got destroyed and banned. He had some issues. He ended up using heroin. Now he's spending all of his money on heroin. He's injecting drugs. He's got all these problems. His family is suffering. I'm not saying drinking opium tea is harmless by any means, but it's definitely much, much, much less harmful than injecting heroin. And it can be a part of a normal lifestyle. Drinking opium tea can be part of a regular healthy lifestyle. It doesn't have to be just like drinking alcohol can. You know, too much alcohol can be a problem, but drinking alcohol does not make you a bad person or make you a, an addict or a failure or anything like that. And so I, I really believe from what I've seen and what I've read and the studies that are out there that opium tea access could really make a big positive difference in a lot of opiate injectors' lives. Well, you can certainly hear the passion for the subject in your voice, Dana. I appreciate that. Let me let me finish up with a, what I am referring to as my hot seat questions. Just a few kind of quick responses to simple questions like, what's your favorite strain? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, I've smoked a lot of good cannabis over the years, and I'd say the strain is important, but the grower is just as important. Ah, and I guess the, some of the best weed that I ever smoked was the blueberry strain grown by DJ Short, 
who was the breeder and creator of the blueberry strain. And uh, I learned a lot from that guy uh, back when I was doing Cannabis Culture Magazine. He did some articles about how to breed and how to develop strains and how to, to develop your palate for tasting and appreciating cannabis. He was one of the most amazing growers ever. And his blueberry that he grew himself, I would say, is some of the best cannabis I've ever had the pleasure of trying. Well, now I'm envious on that one. Do you uh, prefer joints or vaping? I'm a joint smoker. Uh, my friends call them Dana Doobies when I roll them because <laughs> I bet they are. a Dana Doobie tends to be a one and a quarter size paper, uh, no filter, maybe a little bit pregnant in the middle, and usually uh, sprinkled in with hash and oil mixed in with a few kinds of weed. People sometimes say to me, what strain is this? And I say, all of them? <laughs> I just mix it all together. I call it the full spectrum uh, cannabinoid effect, right? So I, I try to do that with all my joints. So they're Everyone is unique and different, but they've all got a real blend of, of cannabis extracts and on, on cannabis and oils and that all mixed together. And I follow the same route. I, I never put filters in my joints either. I mean, I know everyone is dabbing these days all the time, and I dab a little bit, but I really I don't have a dab rig at home. I don't really dab at home. I only do it socially sometimes, but I'm, uh, I've always been a joint smoker. I don't even really hit the bong very much. I just like smoking joints. They fit in well with my lifestyle and my activities, and uh, I enjoy rolling them probably as much as I enjoy smoking them. <laughs> it's a personal thing, isn't it? Absolutely. No, I understand that. Yeah. Your favorite munchie? My favorite munchie? Uh, I tend to be more into savory stuff rather than sweet stuff, so I don't eat a lot of candies or things, but I do like nice sugar and, I mean, a nice uh, chocolate, and I like uh, I eat a lot of chips and that probably more than I should. Uh, so those are the kind of snacks I enjoy, I suppose. Nice. And uh, do you do any edibles, or is it strictly flour for you? I do edibles sometimes, or I use drops sometimes. We sell these uh, hemp seed oil infused with uh, hash resin drops in my dispensary, and I quite like those. Uh, But edibles really are not for me for the daytime. Uh, I can function very well and do everything I have to do while I'm chain-smoking joints. That's not a problem. But if I'm eating a lot of edibles, I don't want to drive. I don't want to have to interact with people. Uh, I find it, you know, edibles, even at this point in my life, are still difficult to titrate the dose and to find just the right potency to get the right effect. So when I do use edibles, I usually use them at home in the evening uh, when I'm looking to really relax or get into an alternate headspace or, or seek out some extra creativity or something. But, uh, but on a day-to-day basis, I don't really use edibles uh, that often. I knew it was going to be an interesting conversation, Dana, and I'm really glad that I kept up and got you on the phone and and you have not let me down. This has been a truly good conversation. Thank you so much for taking some time. Any last thoughts for people as you look about legalization and where you would like to see it go in the next little bit? What's big on your mind? Well, I guess it's some of the things I talked about a bit earlier that I'd love to see us using. I mean, I think we got to keep pushing for cannabis to be reformed better, and I think that civil disobedience has been our number one tactic over the years. And I think that we need to continue that tactic uh, and keep pushing and keep breaking the laws when required in an open and transparent way. And we happen to be lucky enough to live in a country where you can do that in an effective way and, uh, and not necessarily risk all of your liberty uh, in the way it might happen in some other countries. So I want to I wanna see us keep breaking the cannabis laws, keep making cannabis available, and then further to use these same tactics that we used on cannabis to end the whole war on drugs. 
And whether it's psychedelics and entheogens, whether it's coca leaf tea, whether it's opium tea or whatever it is, that finding ways to make these substances available in a legal and transparent way, uh, I think is very important. This opioid overdose death crisis is uh, really getting me down. And uh, the solution to it is to provide a safe source of access of opiates. And uh, so I think we need to start using these same tactics and make that happen. And let's see 2019 be the year that is the beginning of the end of the whole war on drugs in Canada. Wouldn't that be nice? What a great thought to finish on. Thank you so much for your time, Dana. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day, sir. My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks for having me on and good chatting with you. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. Now to the other topic that I raised at the beginning of the show. Can we please stop calling it marijuana? Maybe you use that name because you think it's cool. Maybe you call it marijuana because it's what you've been hearing for years. Well, today I want to share some good reasons why I think you should never again refer to cannabis as marijuana. Whether you spell marijuana with a J or an H, the negative aspects of that word are buried deep in the culture of the United States in the early 1900s. Throughout the 19th century, news reports and medical journal articles almost always used the plant's formal name, cannabis. Many accounts say that marijuana came into popular usage in the U.S. in the early 20th century. Anti-cannabis factions at the time were trying to underscore the Mexicanness of cannabis, playing off the anti-immigrant sentiments prevalent then and apparently still prevalent for some down south. This helped create the background for propaganda films of the time like Reefer Madness, where they imagined far-fetched outcome from the marijuana menace. Pre-1900 cannabis had been mentioned for its medical usage or in industrial textile. Post-1900 marijuana was being quoted in stories like this from a 1905 Los Angeles Times story. People who smoke marijuana finally lose their mind and never recover it, but their brains dry up and they die, most of time suddenly. It was like we were talking about two separate drugs. It got worse in 1937. That's when U.S. Narcotics Commissioner Harry Ainslinger testified before Congress in hearings that would eventually conclude with federal restrictions on marijuana, restrictions that exist nationally to this day. Ainslinger used the term marijuana to reinforce the plant's foreign identity, wanting to radicalize the plant for white audiences. His testimony included this amazing statement. Marijuana is the most violence-causing drug in the history of mankind. Most marijuana smokers are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from marijuana usage. Probably most today who call cannabis marijuana have no idea of the origin of the phrase and use it interchangeably with cannabis, but in my mind, marijuana has too many connections to that dark and dangerous past. We should mark legalization in Canada by taking a bold step. Let's remove marijuana from common vernacular. And let's proudly extol the virtues and benefits of cannabis. Now that I've jumped off my soapbox, <laughs> and I think that's just something that I need to do. I need to express perhaps a bit more opinion. And that's the first attempt at expressing an opinion on a particular piece. Let's get marijuana out of our vernacular. That brings us to the end of episode number nine of the Cannabis Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have something to say or some suggestions for the program going in the future, please send it out to info at cannabispodcast.com. Looking to future episodes, 
We've got an order in with bccannabisstores.com. It's actually on a mail truck somewhere between the coast and here. Expected to arrive sometime next week. And I took advice of friends. And like I usually do, would be or to order an eighth or a quarter or something. I ordered six individual grams of some of the more expensive types. We'll try some strain explains on those. Gabriola is one of those. We've already tried some stuff from Broken Coast. So looking forward to the arrival of those little treats. And who knows what other unique and interesting cannabis stories are going to pop up over the next seven days. And that brings us to the conclusion of episode number nine of the Cannabis Podcast. From the cannabis-infused studio, high above the Okanagan Valley, this was the Cannabis Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, this is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire, and I'm the host of the Terps in the City podcast. I am a cannabis agricultural dietary supplement and trade attorney. I'm also a hemp farmer, and I've been recently named to the list of High Times Magazine's top 100 influencers in cannabis. I'm inviting you to follow me along my journey as I move back to New York to support the adult use market there. You're going to get a chance to listen to conversations with some of my friends along the way. I look forward to seeing you at Terps in the City.